step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I want to know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height In the height Put it all in the height Hey, a big shout out to Stone City Edibles and let's dedicate this episode to them. Did you know that they sell almost all gluten-free cannabis-infused medicinal and recreational products, including chocolate chip cookies, double chocolate chip cookies, oatmeal raisin, I've had them all, they're unbelievable. $50 will get you six and 100 bucks will get you a dozen. If you would like to order probably the best tasting and the most powerful edible in the land, be in touch with Stone City Edibles, at Stone City Edibles 2016 at gmail.com or go to their website, stonecityedibles.com. Hi, this is Avram, and you are listening to Hot Radio. Welcome to the show. It's delightful to have you back as a listener. This is the fourth episode of Hat Radio. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the, f- the first three. If you have, let me know. You can reach me at avram.rosenswig at viahafta.org. Of course, you can find it on uh, all the episodes on my Facebook page. And I have to tell you something. I'm really excited about doing this podcast. And I am because really it gives me the first opportunity in life in my radio career um, to speak to people in great depth, to understand humankind better, and to do something that I enjoy more so than anything else in life. And that is uh, getting to know the world. So... Um, today we have what I think is another fantastic interview coming up. I'm here with my very dear friend, Alexa Gilmore. Say hello, Alexa. Hi there. Nicely said. Thanks. Now, why did I invite you on the show, Alexa? Yeah, why? You were wondering yourself, <laughs> were you? <laughs> I was. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't quite figure that one out. I said yes, but I'm still scratching my head. Okay, so here's why. Okay. To me, you're the real deal. What does that mean? Right. So I was born into a rabbinical family. My father was a rabbi. My mother was a rabbitson. And we lived in Kitchener, Ontario. I was there from zero to 13. My father and mother were there, I think, for 37 years, and then he died. And essentially, he was the man who went out into the world to rescue people, to save people, Mm -hmm. to help people. And, of course, my mother was there with him hand in hand. He was the real deal. Like, as an example, when my sisters and I were kids, mm-hmm. my father, he this is the word that he used, he kidnapped this Jewish girl from <laughs> Satan's Choice, which is a motorcycle wow. gang, brought her into her home, and she lived with us mm. for a long time. It could have been two years, three years. I don't remember. Amazing. And very often when my father would bring home these people, the way they would show their appreciation is by stealing from us. But mm. that being said, my parents still kept them in our family environment and um, ultimately she was rescued Satan's Choice went to to jail for what they had done and uh, she was free so a few years ago you and I became involved in what we'll call the Roma situation the Pasumas and essentially your church which is Windermere Church 
um, took in the Pasumas, and they stayed there for, what, about three years? Well, no, they were in Sanctuary for three years, but a year and a half at Windermere United right. in my office. Yeah, in your <laughs> office, <laughs> I right. I kicked out of the office. Right, you turned Sent it into... down to the toddler room. The toddler room, right. Yeah. So, and then after that, once Canada decided through its generosity, her generosity, that they would allow the Pasumas to stay here, mm -hmm. I'm assuming that you either needed or had an a situation where you had to give more. So what did you and your husband do? You adopted three children, brothers and sisters. We did. Right? So to me, this is like beautiful and it's unbelievable. And I am, thanks. firstly, I'm so proud that you're my friend. Hey, thanks. I am because <laughs> there's not a lot of people out there like you. You mm -hmm. are the real deal to me. And that's why I brought you on. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Well, now I know. <laughs> okay. Th that's it. That's um, it. I'm, I'm embarrassed and excited to talk to you. Do, do you feel like the real deal? Oh, um, <clears throat> no, I, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it that way. Yeah. Uh, I feel called to live my life a particular way. And when I don't, um, I feel inauthentic and unhappy. And when I live my life in accordance with my faith, which we're called to, you know, hand over our lives, uh, then I actually feel the most joyful, the most fulfilled, like I'm going to use myself up by the time I die. Right. And, um, and I'm also filled up by it. So I don't, yeah, the, that's more the, the way that I live my life is, is in terms of calling. I'm listening for this thing that pulls on my heart. And when I answer it, oh my gosh, the blessings, the, um, the experience, the possibilities, the things that I never imagined could happen, yes. happen. And, and mm, I'm transformed. The world around me is transformed. Um, and it, uh, in pretty remarkable ways. And so, I get to so, be part of it. So you, you, I mean, you were an actress and then you became a minister. You're the minister of Windermere Church, yeah. which is on the west side of Toronto. Yep. So this didn't happen when you were an actress? No. And in fact, thank goodness um i noticed that so i was all my life since i was eight i wanted to be an actor and i i by the time i was 16 i was acting in television and film by the time i was in my 20s i was in uh series guest stars and and lead roles were you good i then apparently i was good enough i always had imposter syndrome i still do so I do too. right yeah. so you'd have to ask others for that but um I got to the point where I was making a living as an actor. Yeah. Um, I was only auditioning for series leads, and so the next sort of step would have been my own series or something like that, presumably, if it had happened, and I wasn't happy. You weren't happy. No, and, and, I, and I was so surprised and upset because here was my dream about to come true, and I was unhappy. Yes. And here were all my friends wanting what I was, was doing, and I wasn't happy with it. And I had a bit of a crisis and started to sort of search for what would make me happy. And I ended up, um, it was definitely a spiritual crisis, but I hadn't been in the church in 20 years, though my early, early upbringing was, um, was a Christian religious upbringing. And so I didn't initially go looking in the church. I went to meditation. I went to sort of indigenous did traditions. Did you try Judaism? I never did. Yeah, you, know? you should have given it a it shot. It probably would have happened faster for me. <laughs> um, but what I did end up doing was finding um, a community uh, of folks who, had, um, who were running vision quests. And I felt... Uh, called to to participate and I spent four days four nights alone in the woods um, did you by myself yep with no tent no food just me and God and it was amazing um, were you scared 
No, because I knew that that's where I was supposed to be. I was literally at a uh, at a pipe ceremony a few weeks before, and while this experience was happening, I heard a voice say "Vision Quest" in my head or around, and so. I then said to the person who was running the pipe ceremony, what's a vision quest? And they laughed out loud and said, uh, well, you're about to find out. My friend's running one in a couple of weeks. And so I was there. And I just felt so um, carried by God, by the Spirit. So so, so just, just I want to yeah. take a step back for a second. Yeah. So you're in the forest for four, four days, four nights. Yep. Uh, was there not a moment where you were lying in your tent? And no you tent. Were, you were lying under the stars mm -hmm. and you heard a creaking in the woods? Oh, yeah. What, what, what was that all about? Well, the, 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 the practice uh, of a vision quest is that if you make a commitment to the Creator, that the Creator will make a commitment to you for those four days, four nights, and that you are safe. You are held in the palm of God's hand. And so I trusted that and felt that uh, and was not scared or worried So if um, you would have been, in that sense. If you would have been eaten by a bear, God forbid, yeah. Would you still have argued had you been able to or would your friends have argued that you were in the palm of God? Well, I, I wasn't, so I can't. Um, all I know Someone was... Someone who is. <laughs> like, I, no, my, you know my question. Yeah. My, my question is, if that were the case, we would all sort of snuggle into the palm of God and be safe and there would be no Holocaust, there would be no Campuchia, yeah. yeah. there would be no Vietnam. There are moments um, in my life, and I don't know if others feel this way or not, there are moments where I'm unsure. Yes and moments where I'm sure. And I am sure that I am in line with the spirit, in the flow. People talk about it different ways. But that was one of those moments where I knew that's where I needed to be and all was well. And that doesn't mean it wasn't hard. Like I've, I've described the vision quest as um, two years of therapy in four days, right. right? Because you are stuck with your own thoughts, with your own stuff, with the things that had happened. I just had a breakup in my marriage. I was a single parent. I was leaving my acting career. I didn't know where I was going. So it was not an easy time, but it felt right. It felt, um, it felt inspired. It felt, you know, God held. So God is Jesus, Jesus is God, is that right? Yes, I mean, it's more complex than, than that. And, Sim and, simply put. And each, each Christian, I think, has, I mean, you have, you have the, the Trinity, but a lot of us have different relationships with the different aspects of the Trinity. And, and I tend to um, be pneumatological, which means um, the spirit, uh, for me, was my, my place of first relationship and access to God, as opposed to Jesus. I love Jesus. I think he's amazing. He's my teacher, my leader. I could even use the word uh, savior because he has saved my life, but I wouldn't because it has too much baggage um, with it. Uh, and too many people mean different things by that. Um, but the spirit, this innate knowing that happens to me once in a while and happened to me with the Pasuma story as well, um, is how I uh, access or am accessed by God. Do you pray to God or do you pray to Jesus? Um, I, I pray. Uh, and again, it's, I rarely pray to Jesus. Um, I pray to, again, I think that, that experience for me of prayer is one of relationship with the spirit, uh, as opposed to one that has a lot of verbal language to it. Um, if that makes sense. No, it, it does insofar mm -hmm. as any religion can. But again, again, let's take a step back. Mm -hmm. So, so is Jesus separate from God according to the United Church, according to you? Both and. 
right? So we're not we're very much in line with um, uh, Christian uh, theology. Mm-hmm. We believe in the Trinity, so uh, the three and the one are together, and there is a mystical, great mystery element to that. Um, and um, the United Church. Uh, when you are ordained, you make a profession of faith um, that includes the the Trinity. Um, and we realize that many people come to faith in many different ways. So there are those, uh, you know, my colleagues and congregants, who, um, who come to faith through the mind and reason and the biblical text. And there are others yes. who come through faith through the mystical elements. Um, and the United Church has a very, very wide tent um, uh, that we sort of, um, because we come from a, a variety of traditions coming together, and there's a sense that that what we hold in common um, is stronger than our differences theologically, um, and so there is um, a robustness to the beliefs that can hold a, a variety of beliefs within that container. And, and you're you're very much involved in social activism. The church is right. Mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm. you know you know that the United Church a few years ago really pissed off a lot of Jews. You I know do. That. We I had do. to mention that, right? Yeah. What was yeah. your take on that? What was that all about? Oh, that's probably a whole other conversation. Um, I mean, it, you know, it really does deserve um, a longer conversation. Um, the complexity of the situation is. Uh, one that breaks my heart, yes. right? I mean, I adore you. I uh, I adore the the Jewish communities that came to Windermere around uh, the Pasuma support. And I have repeatedly said that we could not have supported that family without our Jewish brothers and sisters mm-hmm. in particular. Thank it was you an for saying interfaith that. experience. Yes, it was. There was there were Muslims and Jews and people that um, held secular views. Yes, but it was the Jewish people. Um, with their memory of the Holocaust and the memory of, of, and the commitment to never again, who showed up regularly. And we're a tiny church. We were about 35 on a Sunday then. And to support a family day in, day out um, would have been nearly impossible were it not for um, the Jewish community that supported us. All right. So this was the whole issue, Israel, Palestine, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. So <laughs> let's shelve that right now. Sure. Okay. And perhaps we'll do another show down we the could. road. We and could. we'll talk about at the end of the day, you and I are friends mm-hmm. and we've done stuff together. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that if people can overcome their difficulties and challenges, that to me is the best path to God. Right. Well, and, and I don't think, you know, shelve it and bring it back because I don't think we want to completely, um, ignore the places of challenge and friction, right? I'm not, you know, I'm not interested in that. Um, it's just it's such a big, complex issue. So if that's where we want to go, then we could do that. Um, but I'm, it's not an area of my focus in my ministry. So I would feel um, a little bit out of my depth arguing it Fair on enough. behalf of the United Church. Fair enough. And, and again, yeah. Hat Radio is all about, that's a humanitarian approach to life. Mm-hmm. And that's what I like to focus on too. Um, there are people out there who are infinitely wiser than I am and more adept at discussing that situation. I just have to tell you that your church pissed us off. That's all. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> That's my way, Alexa. <laughs> Fair. And, you know. Um, and not all Jews, by the way. Some Jews yeah. were in sync with what 
the church, the United Church uh, said and did, right? Yeah, yeah, and I, and we continue to have um, relationships right. with with different viewpoints in the in the Jewish faith, um, and we should be talking more. Um, you know, just have our back when we need it. That's all I ask. Mm-hmm. So the Pasumas. Oh, by the way. Oh, question okay. for you here. What? So I'm I'm reading your uh, sort of small bio on Twitter, and you call yourself a settler. What's a settler? So that's a term I picked up recently um, because it's important for me to remember um, my relationship to this land. And um, every single Sunday morning, we start our uh, worship service with an acknowledgement of the land, but not just an acknowledgement of the land and of the Wampum Belt Covenant, um, but also a... um, a statement we say that our relationship has not been as God intended it to be and we commit to healing our relationship with our indigenous siblings and with the land both and so for me that is one way in that that title is one way in which I remember um, it's a touchstone of uh, my relationship to this land and to um, its original people and um, the importance of healing that relationship is part of um, what I want to be part of in, in my day. What do you say to people who think that the announcement of we are on this particular land, the land of the Mississaugas or the Ojibwe's, mm-hmm. prior to starting an event, those people say, well, why are you mentioning that? You know, if you're on someone's land, get off it. Like, mm, what mm. is the value in telling me that you're on my land? They're right. criti- crit- and you know we do that too at Via Hufta, the organization mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I ran for many years. But I, I've often heard that question. I'm interested in your take on it. Sure. Um, a few years ago, our church um, formed a little Truth and Reconciliation Committee, and some of the members actually went to Ottawa when the recommendations uh, came out. And um, this is all part of the the recommendations and the reconciliation process and so um to acknowledge the past and to um commit to finding a way forward um the united church for example has some of its uh, mission and service funds going back to reclaiming the indigenous traditions and language and it's given to those communities um, as part of our attempt to um, to reconcile and to um, to to atone I think too for the residential schools which the United Church inherited when they became the United Church in Canada in 1925 and and continued to operate um, which was you know truly systemic evil and 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 how do you um, how do you reconcile and 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 heal? Um, well, the first thing you have to do is you have to acknowledge it, and it is a daily acknowledgement, and it is a weekly acknowledgement, and it doesn't happen one time. Um, and this is uh, one of the small touchstone reminders that there's work here to be done, and it is just the beginning it's the gateway it's the reminder and then yeah. you have to follow through with something okay can you believe our country did that no i mean no. you know we were part of the truth and reconciliation as well we mm-hmm. went to ottawa as well and bernie farber who was the chairperson yeah. of the office at that time read a statement that we had written um we got a big hand for the statement and i asked some of my native colleagues later why that was mm-hmm. and they said because we know that you know what the pain 
of a, you know what the pain of a holocaust is therefore mm-hmm. you know what our pain is that we had gone through through the residential schools and through my research and reading and through that time at via hafta you know alexa i i also love this country and mm-hmm. i guess i'm a settler too um i just can't believe what we did to those people my god and still do to a large extent like yeah no, what is that about the done. canadian soul yeah yeah what's your take on that like how where does that lie inside of us? The, the cruelty, like how many children died at, at the the residential schools, starved, ran away, and froze to death? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was just cruelty. It is. It's it, and it it was justified, and it was. I mean, and and part of what hurts so much for me, and part of why I ran away from Christianity for decades before yeah. getting this call, which you know happened on the Vision Quest. I got a call to ministry, and basically sat up and said, I can't be a Christian minister. I believe in that gays and lesbians should get married. I, I hate what the church has done in so many areas. Um, and so I had to really wrestle, um, and still do, with what the church did and what Christians have done. Yeah. Um, and... Um, and and I, I, I can't hold it all right. I mean, I get pieces of it, and 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 uh, I lament, and I sort of get an understanding of how someone could justify, and then it disappears again, and I can't possibly get how we did this, um, and how we continue to do it, right? And. I see it happening again right now in 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 terms of the way our language um, is becoming more divisive, and certain people are becoming dehumanized. And once we dehumanize somebody, yes. we can do all kinds of things to them. We can let their children die in cages at the border, right? We can say to them they don't belong in our country. We can um, we can leave them without clean drinking water. We can leave them without all sorts of basic human rights, um, and so. Uh, so Alexa, yeah. Well, why Alexa. doesn't Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and all the other major and minor uh, philosophies, ideologies, religions, well, why don't they turn us into righteous human beings? Well, like. There is so much work to be done, as you said, so many flaws in humankind. And I know when we were working on the Pasuma issues, there were mm-hmm. a lot of Christians on the other side, a lot of Jews, people who I went to in my community who could just give a shit. So you think to yourself, wow, you have this treasure here, which mm-hmm. you've taken mm-hmm. into your heart. I love Judaism and I, and I see the bountifulness of it. Mm-hmm. But it's not turning people, it's not making people righteous. Yeah, and no, because... Um I, the things that you, at the beginning of this episode, the things that you uh, sort of lauded or praised about me are directly related to my faith. So that's you. Uh, but, so I, but I can't separate me from, I wasn't doing those things, you know, before, uh, in, to the same extent. I, I, I you know, there, there's a way in which I've always been me, and this is a continuation of that, but my faith has deepened that and uh, deepened my ability to, uh, to care and to act and to act boldly and bravely. So I do think that our, our faiths do that. Or can do it. Or can do that. Um, but mostly don't. Well, and, and so that, you know, the question would be where they don't and why they don't. Um, and part of that has to do, I think, the in- institutionalization of it, the comfortable pew, as we call it, right? Yeah. Like, um, but when you 
in our case as Christians read the story of Christ yes. and of, of Jesus, there's no other answer but to go out and, you know, give away your other coat and, tur- you know, hand your life over. Um, and the other thing that I think people don't get um, sometimes is that it's not just a uh, random handing of over of your life to everybody and anything. Like I could do 24-7 giving away, giving away, giving away. And that wouldn't be what I think we're called to do. Um, there's a, a, a priest by the name of Friedrich Bruckner who said, your vocation, your calling in life is where your deep joy meets the world's great hunger. Yes. Right? Yes. And that's what I think um, the great traditions offer us. It's not simply you are called to do it all. You can't. That's exhausting and that's f- that terrifies you. You are called to do something specific that is uniquely yours to do and when you do there's such deep joy in that that the that that there's this um, life-giving aspect to it. Why doesn't the Pope stand up tomorrow mm-hmm. or on Sunday and stand before his billion and a half followers and those who listen to him mm-hmm. and say, everybody has to take on an issue and take it on vociferously. You have to, if you're a billionaire, start giving away most of your money. Okay. There's people who are hungry. There's mm-hmm. little mm-hmm. children who don't go to school. We can fix this and here's how we're going to do it. And we're going to, but why doesn't he do that? Well, I think he does. Um, I think his messages are about giving away and, uh, you know, uh, about living like Christ. I don't think we always hear it. Um, and certainly when the Pope does it, and I'm not a Catholic, so uh, I'm, I'm on the outside like you in terms of that particular um, tradition, there is a sense of um, a bit of hypocrisy because there's so much wealth within the church. Right. Um, but I can't, you know, cast too many stones that way because I live in a very comfortable house. I could give away more. I could do more. Um, but uh, I think he does. I just don't think we hear that message because we don't want to. So you know what the beauty of you is? What? <laughs> you, you, like you truly look, you truly look at, at the glasses being half full. My father was sure. my father was like that too, and he would yep. look at people and he would say, "You know what? It's really good they came to synagogue." But we're don't forget that. Like right? we wake up, right? right? We wake up. We have this day ahead of us. Adrian, my husband, laughs at me regularly because he says that I, I basically bounce out of bed and go, "It's all still here," <laughs> right? And and I there is a sense of of that now, um, and maybe that's I've been blessed or fortunate to have an outlook that uh, that is a half full outlook um and i don't know what that what we would what i would attribute to that to because i've had lots of challenges and difficulties and yes. and and you know some of the things that have happened in my life and and around my life but um it is gift and that is another teaching right that's that's grace that there's that this world of ours is gift to each one of us and that um grace is that there's nothing you can do to make god love you more Right, you can't earn it. You can't be, you know, the CEO of Vehafta and earn God's love. You you can't. You but there's also the flip side of that is that there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Oh, good. You're loved, wholly accepted, right? And from that place of complete acceptance, we're transformed um, and respond with 
generosity and abundance as well because this is all gift. Everything I have, it's, I've done nothing, right? I hate the bootstraps mentality. I hate it so much. Well, pull up your bootstraps. Right? No, that that um, I I I I got here by you know my own bootstraps, right? I've done it myself. I you know, right, right. and yeah, if you pull up your own bootstraps, you can do it. The world isn't like that, you know. I'm a, a white middle class um, female born in Canada. I have a lot of privilege as a Christian and all the rest. Um, the w- ways that I've gotten to this place and time are in part because of, of who I am and my skills and talent, but in much bigger sense because of things that were not about me at all. Um, and so when you start seeing that, um, you start to recognize the ways in which um, we're, we're all uh, connected and that we are all meant to be there for one another. Um, yeah, you're... You, you mentioned before that you uh, you said you had a voice in your head mm-hmm. uh, that someone called out to you. Mm-hmm. Well, explain that process to me, how that works. Gosh, I wish I could. Um, Did, like, do you hear <laughs> God in your head? Yeah, uh, sort of. When, and it's very, uh, it's not every day, it's when I'm uh, mindful, when I'm in need, I have uh, moments where I just know. I know what the next step is, and I know it's going to be all right. Intuitively. In, intuitively, and sometimes. Um, so here's a story for you that might help. There was the moment that I was, at the last day of the vision quest, there's two stories actually. One was, last day of my vision quest, I said, um, creator, this has been amazing, and thank you so much, and what can I do for you? And at that moment, I was lying on my back and this hawk flew overhead and I saw every single feather. Um, I could see the stripes in the feather and just as it hit perpendicular to me, I heard a voice say, become a minister. Yes. Right? So I already told you, I argued the rest of the afternoon because, you know, I was in this other uh, tradition. I didn't want to be a Christian minister. I thought, maybe they said minstrel, like, or like, (laughs) you know, teacher's minister. Like God stuttered for a moment. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, but it was so strong that I went back the next day, signed up for school for seven and a half years. I didn't tell anybody for a few years. The other story that um, illustrates how God speaks is in my life is when um, we were discerning whether uh, we would welcome the Basuma family. We knew we had to, had to discern. We knew we couldn't just say no, uh, but we didn't know if we could physically handle it. We didn't know what the legal ramifications are. You know, yes. you, you can go to jail for this sort of thing. There's fines involved, right? Who would go to jail? Well, me and probably some of the council members or something, right? So there was a lot to consider, right? And we had these meetings, um, first with the council and then with the whole church, where we put our fears and our hopes on the table. And then we asked, what are the voices we need to listen to? So we needed the legal advice, we needed the scripture advice, we needed people who'd offered sanctuary before, we needed to know about this family. Could they, you know, could they um, survive mentally and all of that, this uh, experience? Was there hope for them at the other end or were we indefinitely? Those kind of questions. I often wondered about all this, the process. Yeah. So we went through this beautiful process led by one of our, our congregants who's a facilitator. Um, and however, one of the meetings was really contentious and there were some really painful questions. And um, I walked out of that meeting feeling a lot of despair. Yes. Like, this wasn't going to happen, and to my mind, um, if it, if you know, if I lived alone, it would op- have to have happened, right? I mean, y- 
people live in my house all the time. I'm a little like your dad, as you said. My, uh, as I can see. My, my daughter sort of laments the amount of people I've had, you know, living in, in our house at various times. Tell her she can talk with me if she likes Yeah, it. I, should, I should send her over. <laughs> consult. Um, the things that have been stolen from her place. Um, but but I, so I was certain it should happen, but I also knew as a leader of the community that I couldn't force anybody to. So I took my despair home and I said to my husband, I have to go for a walk. And I went to High Park and I tried to sit in a certain spot and just weep. And there was glass in this spot and I couldn't sit. And there was another spot that was fully visible to everybody. And I kept feeling a call to go sit in that spot. And I kept refusing it. And I finally listened to it, sat down on a log, put my head in my hands, looked down and saw a piece of scripture. Mm. And it was First John 3.16, which is um, little children, let us not love in words uh, alone, but in actions and in deeds. For how can someone have the world's riches and not see a brother in need and do something? Mm. And at that moment, having been pulled to that spot, looking down and seeing that piece of paper, I knew that was God's way of saying it was all going to work out. And, and it did. And it did, right? Like it, it did, and I knew it. Um, and I don't ha- know how else to explain that except that. So, so those are beautiful stories, by the way. Thanks. I, I had Jewish chills running up and down my arm. <laughs> I got Christian ones. <laughs> yeah, Christian ones, yeah. Uh, yeah, so what I'm hearing is, and again, you're right, it's complex, and it would take a longer conversation. There's a compulsion inside of you. There's an urging. There's a motivation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And all of that sort of comes together to do the right thing in the guise of, of the New Testament, Jesus, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you'll say it's a calling. Sometimes it's a feeling. Sometimes it's a thought. I'm going to assume that people define it differently based on their denomination or who they are as a human mm-hmm. being, mm-hmm. right? Is that accurate? Is, is that what I'm hearing? I, yeah, I call it a calling because um, it feels like I'm pulled or called forward into something. Right. Or, um, and other people would call it something else. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Because the, the fundamental question I think that I wanted to ask and was wondering about, yeah, what is that thing literally that happens inside of you that takes you from point A to point B to sit on that bench mm-hmm. and to see what's going on. There's a certain mystical component to yeah. all of this as well, right? For sure. That's that's my way into the faith is through the mystical elements of it. Right. Um, I used to work as a hospital chaplain and get these calls to, I always took the stairs, I'd get a call to get, and I'd be thinking about a particular family and I'd get a call to take the elevator and I would just trust it and I would get in the elevator and the family that I was trying to talk to was in the elevator, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I have... Um, part of how I operate in the world is through this mystical alum- way. It, it's right? it's somewhat childlike too, in a sure, positive way. There's a faithfulness there that you have to be- you have to just sort of trust. So I have that too. Right? I have that too. Like do, I'll eh? open a door yeah. and the per- person I need will be on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a childlike component of people. It's really nice actually. It, it, it's well, sweet. I, it's unfortunate that we call it a childlike component because I think it's one of it's a lost. Um, intelligence of ours, right? We have emotional intelligence, we have um, intellectual intelligence, and then there's intuitive intelligence that some communities, uh, uh, you know, the indigenous community, for example, and others have have continued to help their children to uh, develop as an intelligence, as a skill, as a, right? And then some of the more Western cultures, maybe like ours, have have called it childish and have 
I didn't, I, I didn't call it childish. I yeah, call yeah. it childlike. You're right. Childlike You're right. to me is beautiful. Yeah. Like you have so, a childlike uh, character about you. So do I. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I, quite frankly, I hang out with people who have childlike characters. You know those people get really old, really young? Yeah, yeah. And again, though, why? So I guess I'm, I'm challenging you a little. In why would we call it childlike? Why can't it be an aspect of our personality and character development throughout our life? It can. Right? It can. But w- what I mean by childlike yeah. is my son is 12 years old. God yeah. bless him, right? Yeah. I'm kissing him right now. And 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 what I love about this little guy yeah. is the questions that he comes with, mm-hmm. the fertile nature nature yeah. of his mind, yeah. right? The wonderment, yeah. the, the very, very, very little experience that he has in life. Therefore, everything is new for him. Therefore, he comes at things in such a pure, mm-hmm. really beautiful way. And that's what I mean by childhood. Right. It's, it's, it's a sense of naivete, but practical naivete that works for adults. Mm-hmm. And when, you, when I see that in people, um, that draws me to them. That that mm. really is my point. But yeah. I accept what you're saying as well. Yeah. Yes, I do. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I, I agree with you that it's something that we uh, that that we see in children. Um, and I wish we saw more. And I wish oh, yeah, it was I encouraged and inspired. Me like, too. I will never be bored. Right. I don't think I could right. ever be bored right. because I'm always interested, curious, in wonder of. Yes. Right. It, it just. And when people say they're bored, it's strange, isn't it? It is so strange. What do you mean you're bored? There's like 76 (laughs) things you can do right now, right? Yes. I know. Yes. Well, you know, the golden question that um, I got taught once was, what is this teaching me? So in any moment in life, whether you're looking at a stick or the person in front of you who's infuriating you or uh, any situation, you ask the question, what is this teaching me? And suddenly, you know, a whole world is opened up to you and there's this, you know, how could you ever be bored? You could never right? be bored. Yeah. It's impossible. No. Well, I heard once, by the way, that boredom is low-level depression and that I think is correct. Mm, yeah. I think it's people who are sad, not that they're immobile, mm-hmm. but they're sad and they can't pick themselves up even though they might know there's 150 different mm-hmm. things they can do. They don't have the ability at that moment to do it. That may be. I mean, I've, I've, I've experienced um, periods of depression and, and I wouldn't have called it boredom I mean, but certainly the inability to get up and do and move and like you're walking through sludge y- is yeah really we, we have to talk about yeah. that at some point really because yeah. my heart breaks mm-hmm. and then you hear about all these people who are k- taking their own lives it's just mm-hmm. so so tragic mm-hmm. but that'll be another show we're going to be upbeat for this one <laughs> right. okay so so we're, we're gonna this is going to be the segue into the pasumas yeah um which is a fascinating chapter in your life and mine mm-hmm. but before mm-hmm. i do that is my as I said before, my father was a rabbi, okay, mm-hmm. and and it was very difficult for me that he was a rabbi because I was very focused on as the only son, sure. the youngest of five siblings, but the biggest thing, Alexa, was that people looked at our family and obviously more specifically my father as though he was the holy one amongst us, mm-hmm. and therefore the expectations were extremely high. And I don't think he really acted himself to a large extent because he felt very strongly he had to live up to that. It was also a generational thing. Yeah. And I, I, I've suffered a lot because I am a rabbinical son. I've benefited incredibly as well, by the way, mm-hmm. for many, many reasons. But my question to you is, like, are, are, are you a minister by nature or, or have you accepted that cloak, mm-hmm. perhaps that yoke? What's it like to be a minister for you? It's uh, it's both those things. Um, so 
when I accepted the call at 29 that God put out there, I found myself, my best self. Everything that I am is made for this job mm. and this lifestyle. And so I am um, a minister. I also struggle as, uh, as a woman um, in a very patriarchal religion uh, to feel like I am a religious leader or elder or example for people. Um, I'm fortunate that, I, that the United Church is a little more relaxed in that sense and that it comes out of the, um, the Protestant tradition of a priesthood of all believers. So my, we are all ministers in my faith. I am called to minister in a particular way, which is through word and sacrament, but that every one of us is uh, called to minister. You can own a drugstore, you can be a lawyer, you can own a, a car mechanic store, but you, uh, shop, but you are still called to minister in your particular situation. So I, that helps me uh, to not, um, not feel the weight of the, uh, the mantle too heavily. Um, but I did struggle, especially initially, uh, and I still do get um, external pressure, uh, people who will say really inappropriate things uh, because I'm a female in ministry. Uh, and uh, but, but yet, you were, weren't you in a calendar in with many on, on uh, purpose, female ministers? Right? On purpose. Because but we but some provocative pictures now. In purpose, because we were always getting told what a minister should and shouldn't do. Like right. your father might have felt, right? That, that oh, a minister can't wear high heels or a minister can't. You're too pretty to be a minister is one of the ones that a lot of us get. Or... Yes. Um, uh, or just even you're a minister, which with this question mark. And, and so what we did was we, we um, after hearing so many stories from one another as, as women, female clergies, where people were sort of putting us down, um, we decided to answer the question, what does a minister look like? And so we, uh, we had uh, 12 uh, photos of 12 different ministers, one who uh, does belly dancing in her spare time. And so, yes. you know, there was, there was her. There and was a couple, right? There was a couple. A gay, uh, a, a lesbian couple. Yes, Some a good friends couple. of mine. Um, because again, in the United Church, uh, that is what okay. God calls who God wants to call, right? right? We've got to get out of the way of what God wants to do. Um, and all of the proceeds went to the Malala Fund and and the Malala Foundation, and we had to print a second run of those calendars. The foundation is for? Uh, Malala, for the education of girls. Okay, yeah. okay. Mm -hmm. So, so um, y y when you sin, y do you take it really hard, personally? Gosh, it depends on the sin. Um, I mean, I rarely use the language of sin. I'm not um, big on it either. But uh, but when I screw up, when I you know really mess up, when I hurt somebody, when I don't live up to my own uh, hopes for myself, uh, yeah, it can be pretty hard on myself. What's first um, and foremost when you hurt somebody? Is it Alexa, you shouldn't do that to other people? Or is it Alexa, Jesus would not have done this? What, 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 oh, what's gosh, the first no. No, it's, um, it's, it's more personal pain than, uh, than shame, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, it's the relationship. So, so sin is it in some ways can be described as separation, right? And, and I've just become separated from, uh, somebody or, uh, even from myself, the, the self that I, you know, uh, want to be. And, uh, and that's painful. Um, are you a good wife? You have to ask Adrian. I think we are good spouses. I really do. Actually. Uh, we work really hard at it. And, yeah. um, 
and we're very careful with one another and yeah. we have to be because we've got a lot on the go and uh, we've got to be pretty solid to be able to to look after the variety of, of needs around us um, but we we take time out for one another um, we even have uh, now that we've got you know three new kids at home we, we take Monday mornings to for couple time and uh, and then great we take play, whatever great time. Great time to date Monday morning. It's <laughs> it's the only time we've got because everybody restaurants else, are not everybody's full. around the rest of the time. Um, but yeah, I you I take it very seriously. It's a calling too. You guys look great, by the way, during the uh, whole Pasuma thing, which I'm now going to talk about. You did. Sure, you, you are. You look very. I know. Well, there's so much I want to ask you. You know, okay. I'm enjoying this very much. So the Pasuma. So yeah. Canada decided that they were going to cut back on letting in Roma. For those mm -hmm. of you who don't know what the Roma are, the pejorative term for them is gypsy, one mm -hmm. we don't use. Although I asked the Roma person, when can you use that term? He said, in reference to music. Yeah. He was, he was comfortable with that. Um, so anyways, so as you said before, the situation arose where Roma were coming to Canada and our government said, sorry, you can't stay here. Goodbye. And they sent them home. Yep. Um, there were three who came here, the Pesumas, and the church decided, or certain churches, not mm -hmm. every church, and certainly not the synagogues, right, or the mosque, mm -hmm. they decided that we were going, they were going to help them. So tell us, tell us the, the, the beginnings, the genesis of the Pesumas. Yeah, so um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tragic story, um, and it's deeply historical one. Um, the, the Roma, um, like the Jews, uh, before them but still don't have any sort of homeland for themselves um, so they are um, in many European countries one of the most marginalized if not the most marginalized um, people and when they came uh, to Canada um, uh, five ten years ago five years ago now um, they uh, were deported back in record numbers but one of the things that had happened was there were three lawyers um, uh, who were in particular found to be taking on these cases not doing any work or very little work very shoddy work at that and um, the families were were then deported because they didn't have strong enough cases and so we uh, were approached by um, by someone who knew this family and knew that the lawyer had failed the family and that this family therefore had a very strong case uh, for um, maybe being able to stay on humanitarian compassionate grounds or s and or having their their case heard and so that was part of our discernment was was there an outcome that would be positive um, if we um, if we stood in the way of their deportation, um, the other piece of it is how can you not stand in the way of, of someone being uh, returned to a place where they might die? And yes. in in Joseph's case, Joseph is uh, the father. He had been doing um, some work in Hungary, um, documenting the rise of hate crimes against the Roma. And he was targeted by neo-Nazis who showed up at their house and tried to murder them. And uh, somebody intervened, and they said, "We'll be back for you." And their little girl saw this. And didn't well, she, she was uh, 16 or 18 months old at the time, and she was, yeah. you know, um, lying under one of the parents oh, right. as they that's were being attacked. Yes. So they got up and left, came to Canada, got picked up by um, by a lawyer who um, who. Uh, was you know a scrupulous lawyer and um, then their case was was rejected they were ordered deported and they went into sanctuary rather than go back to a place of, of terror and we got a call um, 
And this is that place where, you know, sometimes your faith kicks in and sometimes it doesn't. We got a call the week before Christmas. Uh, I was a year into ministry, like a baby minister. <laughs> and and <laughs> so it was a big, big call. Um, and the call was, uh, you know, from Mary Jo Letty, who I deeply respect. Yes. And, and she said, uh, you're never going to believe this, Alexa, but I have this man, his man named Joseph. He has a wife and a child and he needs a place to stay. And I mean, this is the Christmas story the week before Christmas, right? M Mary Jo run, runs an organization for refugees. She does. She and does. other churches had said no, right? Well, this is the thing. So I said, well, of course we have to consider this. I mean, Joseph is, is needs a place to stay. There's got to be room at the end, right? <laughs> and what she said to me was, oh, thank you, Alexa. I've called 20 churches, yeah. and they've all said we're too busy with Christmas. Yeah, I remember you told me this, yes. Which was heartbreaking. Um, and maybe, you know, I don't know. I don't know why. Um, I answered one way and they answered another because a lot of the churches answered on behalf of their congregation. And for me, I couldn't, right? I, 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 so I took it to the council and the council said, you know, we can't answer on behalf of the whole church because this is going to be such a big weight for the church. Uh, so that's when we involved the whole church. And thankfully, we had some time to discern. Um, and at the end of the discernment, we, we asked ourselves, are we called to offer sanctuary? And the answer was yes. Uh, and so they lived with us for a year and a half. Um, and we provided every need you can think of from the emotional needs of having playdates come in to play with, uh, with Lulu to groceries, to doctors, to haircuts. I mean, it's, uh, it's almost unimaginable how much, um, you have to provide when someone's living inside and cannot go out for, you know, we had a, we had a ice storm and, um, the power was out yes. and I was driving down Bloor Street on the north half of Bloor Street there were all these lineups outside of coffee shops because no one could make coffee in their own house right. and I went oh my gosh you know Joseph and Tamea yeah. they drink coffee every day and so I <laughs> you know I got in the lineup and brought them coffee that day because they couldn't go out to get coffee so what was it like for you <laughs> as a minister <laughs> to know that there were there was a family of three uh, living in your church were, uh, you, were you worried? Were you excited? Yeah, were you joyful? No. Were you sad? All of the above? No, all of the above, right? I mean, it's, and mostly worried and sad and mad that this was the state of the world, yeah. right? This should not be. This this family that had stood up to injustice and had um, fought um, prejudice and uh, hate crimes in their own country, they shouldn't be locked away inside a church or anywhere. They should be free and the devastation, um, the you know, the challenges to one's mental health and one's spirit when you are inside, even as nice a place as, as church, right? It still was like being inside a prison, and we would go home at the end of the day knowing that they couldn't. Yeah, what was that um, like for you? It was it was draining, but it was not nearly as draining as it was for that for that family, yes. right? That's and people would say to us um, who'd offered sanctuary before, the money will come. Because we were a tiny church. We were going, how will we do it? You know, the volunteers will come. And the Jewish community and the, the Muslim community, they came, right? Yes. The money was always there. They said the weight is the emotional drain of supporting um, the emotional well-being of, of people who are in sanctuary. And that was by far um, the hardest, the hardest part. And, and, um, and even now, um, the emotional toll on that family um, because of, our government at the time, right when the government changed, the the um, the outlook changed for them. But our our government turning their backs on these justice warriors, these human beings, right? This little girl who's mm -hmm. six, she was five, six, seven, eight, right? Just um, it happens here with one signature, 
the Minister of Immigration. Yeah, that's the amazing right? thing, isn't it? And it was to, it was one signature when the government changed. It's phenomenal. The same role, the same office, right, was able to sign a piece of paper and they were free. And that I'm blown away tragic. by that. Well, I'm blown away by that. Tragic. I don't know how it should work. Mm-hmm. But the idea that one man or one woman has the ability through the stroke of a pen mm-hmm. to grant you life or to grant you death. Mm-hmm. Because had the Pasumas gone back to Hungary, which mm-hmm. is where they came from, mm-hmm. there was a really good chance that they would be killed. Well, and the, the truth of the story is they did eventually because um, yes, they, did. they went through the court systems and the court sided with us saying that they had uh, had a lawyer who'd failed them and they should be given another opportunity. And the Canadian government refused to give them that other opportunity. And so the family saw no other way after three years of living in sanctuary here but to go back and live in hiding. And so they went back and lived in hiding and, and very, very afraid uh, of popping their heads up too far because mm-hmm. if the neo-Nazis found them. Um, and yet, right, you can't stop the human spirit because that was the same time that all of the uh, migration was happening of refugees coming up through Europe. And Joseph Tomei and Lulu would gather up uh, Lulu's toys and toys from their neighbors and they would head down it's to the phenomenal. train stations and they would feed. Phenomenal. And give toys to the children on the train. Unbelievable, right? yes. And all the while worrying for their own safety. Um, but. Then the government changed, and um, we were able to, uh, to to work with our own MP, who was phenomenal. Um, so our MP was Arif Arani, and he said, you know, give us a couple of months because we've just gotten in here, but we'll, we'll do something. And they did. Um, and so the family was, uh, was able to come back. Tell me something. Would yeah. you do it again? Oh, I would do it in a heartbeat again, um, and only if called, right? Because... Uh, because it's a huge toll. It's a huge toll. So I am always careful to try to discern what's mine to do and what's not mine to do, and to trust that there is um, that if it's not mine to do, that I that I shouldn't do it and can't do it. So there would be a you know the little addendum there would be that I don't know that I would do it just wholeheartedly without discerning, you know. But I would discern the call to sanctuary again. Well, what do you di- what do you think it did for you as a person? This whole episode. Um, it made me brave, braver than right. I thought I could be, you know, because I was, well, you know, they've never arrested someone in Canada for offering sanctuary. They could have, right? And I was a, a mum and <laughs> have a life that I wouldn't have um, wanted to, to give up, but you I was willing to. You seem terribly courageous. You, you know? really did. Um, and I, we were worried that we would lose congregants, that we would, right. you know, be a target of neo-Nazis here in Toronto. Um, and it's made me, uh, it's made me brave uh, because there's a right thing to do and um, we, we, nothing should stop you from doing the right thing. Are you scared of people? Yeah, um, but I'm more scared of, of, of not living up to my calling. So, uh, you know, the, uh, there was a human rights incident um, a few months ago where our church, uh, I filed a human rights complaint um, and got, it made it into the papers and um, I got all kinds of hate mail and, um, and some phone calls and I also got lots of supportive ones from, <laughs> from all over the world. So fact. I mean essentially but what you wanted to do, you had a lawn sign. Yeah. And the fellow who owned the company would come weekly, monthly, bi-weekly, whatever, and yep. put the messages on. Yep. 
And and you asked him to put a couple of messages on what you can tell us, and he refused because right. because of his faith, right? Yeah. So uh, so we were using the, the the sign on the front of our lawn to uh, minister to the entire neighborhood, not just the Christians in our church. Yes. Uh, but I would sort of prayerfully discern every week what is needed in this moment. Um, and Mother's Day, for example, it might say um, hold somebody who grieves this Mother's Day, right? Or it might say something as uh, simple as take some time out uh, to sit under the cherry blossom. When the mosque shooting happened, we put a, a message of solidarity on the, the sign. But when last May, and, and every sort of December, we would be, we'd do Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa. Thank you. Um, you're welcome. And we really wanted to put uh, Ramadan Mubarak, wish your neighbor Ramadan Mubarak uh, in May. And uh, he refused, citing uh, his own religious beliefs, sending me all kinds of um, articles uh, about how we wouldn't want to incite the Muslims at this time of year. And I, we went back and forth, and I, I sort of begged him to come in to talk about this. I wasn't trying to censor his beliefs. I just didn't want him to censor mine, right? Yes. And two weeks later, we asked him to put up celebrate God's LGBTQ diversity with pride, and he refused that. And so we had a, a decision to make, and I think the Pasuma story helped us to make that. Um, did we want to be complicit? Did we want to be complacent about this? You know, we could have just bought a new sign. It doesn't affect us. We're mostly white, middle-class Christians. We're very privileged, and we don't have a lot of prejudice coming our way on a daily basis, right? Yes. So we could just let this go. And even we could have fired him with a note saying we, we don't, you know, subscribe to xenophobia and homophobia. Um, but he took the sign uh, away from us in the middle of the night, so we couldn't have actually done that. Uh, Creative fellow, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> um, and we decided that we had to we had to show solidarity, that we couldn't just put words up on a sign. We had to live them out in action. So we filed a human rights complaint, um, and we started a conversation about uh, Christians um, in the media. And, and, and what we wanted was another m voice, another narrative to be out there, right? So often when you hear uh, Christians in the media, not always, but often, it's messages of intolerance, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I, and there is a whole other group of Christians um, who s view Christianity very differently as, as Jesus is the one who broke down the barriers of race and class and culture. And we followed that Jesus. Yes. And we, we wanted that voice to be out there and we wanted those to who've been hurt by the church repeatedly to know that there are many, many Christians, including this little group in the Bloor West area. I, I tell you, man, you, you, you know? have 40 families in your church, so, right? Oh, we have, I don't even think we have 40 families. We have 45 oh, okay. on a Sunday. So people. Right, so I want <laughs> right. to make a yeah. pitch right now. I don't care where you live in Toronto, so. but I think your church is really worthwhile going to. I really do. Oh, thanks, I love so the um, way you minister, the way you lead, and the fact that your church comes around and puts up with so much of your bullshit that's yeah, true. Well, and they like you must be blown it, right? away by that, right? Well, uh, so that's that's part of it. I mean, I'm I'm one person at that church, right? The church yeah. said yes to the Basumas. The church ultimately said, all of them were nodding their heads. We can't just be, you know, we can't just let this go, right? The 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 church is a group of people who rarely. I mean, I talk about the numbers only so that people get a sense of how brave and bold they are, um, because. Uh, uh, they don't worry about their numbers, ever. They just go ahead with doing what they think is the right thing to do as Christians. Why don't tons of Christians pile into your church? Oh, I it's don't. a really nice place. Well, and, 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 and it's all about goodness, true goodness. Look at the stuff that you do. 
But I don't know if we could have done any of that stuff if we were an 800-person church. But but now, now, how you many know? people would you ultimately want at your church? Oh, uh, enough to do the work. And I don't even know what that means, right? Like, we have enough to do the work right now. And if God calls us to a bigger task, I hope God also, you know, okay. sends a few people our way. Okay. I mean, um, I, I guess if I were you, I would say, you know what? I would love to double our numbers, triple our numbers, because the message that you're giving yeah. out, it's like true Christianity. I mean, that you're you're the good Christians, right? But to focus that way, that's my challenge, is, is to focus on the numbers, is um, would lead me away from right. what is, to me, faithful, right? Uh, to me, being faithful is to focus on the calling. What is in this moment in time, you know, with people who are hungry and people who are uh, being are hurting and, uh, and racism and prejudice and xenophobia and, you know, um, with those kinds of things in the world, uh, that's where we focus, and and okay. and here's I, the I thing. So so so, Avram. I mean, here's the the piece about that is that as we do, I think people do show up. You know, maybe not by the hundreds, but when I started there, there was 25 on a Sunday, mm. right? There's 45. Mm. It's what you know, and we don't, we really don't worry about the numbers. Like people have said when they come in, visitors, they'll say. You guys are so small, but you don't seem to be anxious about it. Like nobody's <laughs> right. grabbing onto us You're and saying, okay with it. Right, right. Right. Like, "We're welcoming, but we're not like fresh blood." <laughs> like, yeah, come right, on exactly. in, right? We got you. <laughs> because we got so much to do, right? That's where we're focused is, and um, uh, and that's the cure to worrying about stuff like that, about the numbers, whether it's the financial numbers or the bums in the pews numbers, is to focus on the work. Just. That's, that keeps me busy. That you know, keeps I, our I, congregation busy. I know that I right? ran a nonprofit, and the thing yeah. that it really is foremost in our minds all the time yeah. is budgets, like how yeah. we're going to get the money. Don't you yeah. worry about money? Um, only to the extent that we can't do pieces that we, we you know, but the money always shows up, right? It it just does. It, it, there's We have to pull, we have to ask, we, have, we can't just sort of ignore it. But when we ask, um, our congregation is faithful and we have partners in our building that, that rent out space so we can, we can do the ministry. Um, and uh, maybe I'm, again, just fortunate to land in that space. There are churches who are completely empty and they're totally dependent on just their congregants. Um, and, you know, then their, their focus is on keeping the building going. But I happen to be for fortunate to be in a church where our focus is on the ministry, not yeah. the building. And you're still enjoying it. I love it. Do you? Mm -hmm. How mm -hmm. long have you been doing it at Windermere? Seven years, seven and a half years. Um, and, you know, when I was on parental leave uh, a year and a bit ago, I had a chance to sort of, you know, reassess and discern what, um, you know, whether how I would feel about going back. And there was this really great moment when I put my key back in the office lock. Nice. And it was joy. <laughs> As opposed to like, oh, no, not this place. Good imagery. Uh, right? So and as long as that's the image, right? And, and again, as long as the spirit is calling me to be there, um, I'll stay there. I'll know when it's time to go because, you know, I'll end up in High Park and uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sit right. down on a log and, and God will tell me. Right. Um, I'm sure that'll happen. But, yeah. So, right. So the Pasuma thing ends, if you will. They're in Toronto now. Yeah. They're trying to build a life, which is a not an easy thing for newcomers. No. No, they've got all the struggles that a newcomer has, plus the traumas that they've been through. Yeah, it's a tough They're one. They're incredibly brave, resilient folks. 
really amazing. They really yeah. are. And, yeah. and people should be cognizant about what's happening to the Roma around the world yeah. because it's despicable. I mean, literally in Hungary, they set up schools for mm -hmm. children who would be considered less than, mm -hmm. not as bright. And that's where the Roma are forced to go. Yeah. Uh, Europe treats the Roma like garbage, absolute yeah. garbage. It's and, uh, it's not, and it's not that much better here. No. Not that much better here, but let's let's move on, okay? Okay. So the Roma thing comes to a chapter whereby they leave your church, mm -hmm. and there you are looking at your husband, and you have a beautiful daughter, and I guess either literally you said to one another, okay, what's our next big project? <laughs> oh, no. Or, or no. it <laughs> fell into your lap, and what do you do, which I've never heard of before, yeah. ever. Yeah, ever. Is you, No, uh, you adopt three children, one, three, one nine yeah. nine and one 14? 13. 13 13 now they are yeah and their brother were, and sister right they are they wait wait you've heard of this before well i mean they get in the adopting community yes, in the adopting but, community yeah. right do you know yeah. anyone uh i i do um but not before we adopted when before we adopted no we didn't know anybody and and when we were at uh, one event um that uh, the children's aid offers where you meet you know, different groups of kids and stuff. Right. I remember saying to somebody, you know, we're we're looking at a sibling group of, of three. And from behind me, somebody said, are you crazy? Are you nuts? <laughs> are you so crazy? that's what I was going to ask you. Like, so. were there along the road, were there sort of moments where you looked at Adrian, your husband, and said, are we absolutely freaking nuts? Uh, yeah, and no. Like, you, we do. You have these moments of, of worry or doubt. Um, but again, on our fourth date, Adrian and I talked about kids and how we would raise a family. And we both wanted to adopt so that was a moment of oh this is how we want to build our family so um it wasn't so much you know the Pasuma story was over and what do we do next it was always part of our own personal journey um but uh, the process takes a long time to to uh go through and um we had thought too uh because adrian is our stay-at-home parent and a minister does not make all that much money in the city of toronto and Two sounded right to us. Adrian, by the way, is a well-known actor here in Canada. He is. He yes. is. But he's taking a, a, a bit of a break from it to to be a stay-at-home parent. And Which to, place has he been in? Uh, well, he was Frankie Valley in Jersey Boys oh, um, when it was here in Toronto, and he uh, he also produces uh, his own shows now, and that um, you know is in the sort of style of concert um, music concerts. And so he, he does he does that. He's also, um, as of about a year ago, the minister of music at our church. Is so he? that is actually a reason to come to the church. It is phenomenal. The are talent. you ner are you nervous when he's on stage? Why? That that he you know he might make a mistake, like a parent no. watching a kid at bat. No, um, I mean it, I, I I might be if he's nervous about something. Like okay. if he said before, I'm, I'm you know I've got a bit of a cold today and I'm how really am I going to reach this note? Yeah, then I might be nervous for him. But he is so talented he and is. Um, yeah, just and and very dedicated his to his craft. His Marchuk, Adrian Marchuk. Adrian Marchuk. Um, and now he he translates all of that into the music ministry, and it is a phenomenal music ministry at the church. We get. Um, we get really, um, really moving music, and a lot of his friends will come and sing. And, and so for a tiny church, we have an impressive... I love it. Um, Christians, go. Go to Windermere. Yeah. Okay, okay. So <laughs> so what do you mean you go to places and you see all these kids? Is oh, um, well, that was... Uh, so they... This is kind of a... Children who are... Who are um, lots of people, when they think about adopting, will want to adopt someone younger, someone cute, somebody, you know, closer to the baby age. So there are children out there right now by the thousands um, who are waiting to be adopted. So please go adopt some kids. Um, here, but in here in yeah. Canada. Um, 
and I and I, I say that jokingly because because actually it, go do your homework first if you're going to adopt because a lot of our kids that that you know are through the system are really traumatized and really need um, extra extra parenting skills, but the older ones and the sibling groups don't get adopted as easily, and so they have these um, conferences. They're the, the crass way that I've explained it before is almost like a trade show yes. for kids. And you go and each CAS, you know, Toronto CAS, Ottawa CAS, Sarnia CAS has a booth. And their pictures of these kids are on the back wall. Oh, really? And these parents who are, you know, seeking their family um, show up with their little packages of, of who they are. Oh, I have tears in my eyes. It's oh my God. horrifying. And yet... It makes sense. Matches are made, right? Because you look up and you see these faces. In our case, we knew these three kids already because there's another um, horrible, beautiful way of matching kids. And that is, there is, uh, once you become adopt ready, so you've been sort of certified as, as able to adopt, you can go online. So it's like a match.ca for adoptive families. And you can see these profiles of these kids oh, that are, that are having a challenge getting adopted because they're in a sibling group or because they're older uh, or they have special needs. Um, did you feel like you were imposing so like in a, sometimes? Like looking at these people's lives and it, they looking back and you say, get out of here, man. You want to adopt, you want to adopt all of them, right? Like you, 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 you see these faces coming across the screen, right? And these stories about, you know, age seven loves to dance, wants to do this in life. And you think, you know, or age, I, at one point I wanted to adopt a 17 year old a year because they age out at 18 and then they have nowhere to go for Christmas. <laughs> and I just thought, we'll just adopt <laughs> Every year, a seventeen-year-old, right? Um, That's brilliant. Yeah. Or you should really, you should start, I guess, uh, the modern form of an orphanage. Yeah. Honestly, like raise like twenty or thirty kids, you and you and Adrian. Yeah. He'd probably do a brilliant job. Oh, he'd probably do great at it. Um, you know, he's 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 an amazing dad. He's well, really, let's just stay with this because yeah. I want to hear about your parenting as well. But but so the three kids, how did you finally we, arrive? We saw them on, um, so we had thought two, and, but we were looking at sibling groups, and this group of three came, and we'd looked at dozens, and we'd sort of had these conversations about, well, m you know, maybe that would work, and oh, that one likes to sing, and well, Adrian, you like to sing, maybe that, you know, maybe that's right. But we saw these three, and instantly we both went quiet. Did you? And couldn't, couldn't talk. And eventually I, I said, what are you thinking? And he said, I, I, I don't think I can say what I'm thinking, really? right? And I said, yeah, you, you you can. And he said, I think we found our kids. Did you? Really? And, and I said, yeah, I think we did. And we just knew instantly. Uh. Um, and so we, you know, put a, a letter of, um, oh, I can't remember what they call it, um, interest, I think, a letter of interest in. And we heard back. Um, and they weren't from the Toronto area. So then we, we went repeatedly five-hour trips to, to go and visit them and get to know them. And then, you know, there was the really surreal there's two surreal days. The first one was driving up to the driveway where they, their foster home was. And the closest thing that we can kind of maybe um, compare it to is it's almost like an arranged marriage. Yeah. Right? You haven't met them. But at that point, you're supposed to be so interested in them that you are going to take them because they can't, take another yeah. uh, they can't take another rejection. Right? So we're driving up this driveway and, you know, like about to meet our kids for the first time. And they're oh bouncing God. up and down in the, um, in the doorway, two of them. And one of them's, you know, hanging back, holding uh, a stuffed animal from, from birth mom, feeling, you know, all kinds of ambivalence. And 
Um, and then from there, you know, a few weeks later, we're on a train all headed to, oh. to Toronto, oh. you know, and you're trying to explain, you know, to the, the three-year-old who doesn't get uh, foster home versus adoptive home, why uh, why we took him. <laughs> why you take me, What did you tell him? Well, we just kept saying that, you know, foster home was a place where um, kids who are waiting for their forever homes are. And now forever. you're in your forever home. Right. Um, but were you bawling this whole time? I'm bawling. Oh I feel like bawling here regularly, regularly. Um, really? You know, but I mean, yeah, because it, it's it is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful way to make a family. And it's all born out of loss and tragedy. Right. right? right. So, um, you know, Mother's Day for me is is a really hard day when people wish me a happy Mother's Day. I'm well aware that I'm a mom because some other mom lost her kids. Yeah. Right, yeah. and right. and my kids don't know um, how to navigate that. Sometimes, right? We we have an you know we have an openness agreement with birth moms. So we have phone calls and we have visits and and oh, the birth mom that's comes really to helpful. See them? Uh, we go there, and that's cool. And that's okay. It's it's so important. It's not it's it's hard, right? It's super hard, but it's so important because what we've learned about um, about adoption, we used to say you know cut them off from their old lives, start yes. them a new life. Yeah. Um, and now we've learned that that is actually really traumatizing and not helpful um, because it teaches kids impermanence, right? If these people can be cut out of my life, then so can the next group of people and so can the next group of people. And to whatever extent you can have healthy relationships with people who've been meaningful in their lives, um, it actually helps them uh, with their own sense of identity and belonging um, and permanence. So there's no fear that the mother would come back? Well, she's lost her legal rights, okay. so we are their legal parents. Okay. Um, but uh, when you go out of a place of love for your kids, right, the right thing to do is to facilitate um, meaningful relationships and to um, help create healthy kids, right, and and giving them a sense of permanence with their birth family and a sense of identity um, and a place where they can ask questions about when I was two, you know, what did I do or what was my very first word? I don't have that, right? The birth mom does and she can give that to them and I can give that to them if I, um, if I allow access, right? So you try to make it as true a relationship and partnership, if you will, as possible, right? With the birth mom. Yeah, and I and I mean they're extended families. So so the way that uh, we now talk about adoptive families, especially with openness, is that your family tree grows, mm -hmm. right? Your your family grows. You it's not you get a new family, but your family grows, and we are now part of that expanded family for these kids. But your mom and dad. Yep. Oh yeah, we're mom and dad. So define your describe your love for your three new children. You have a daughter. How old's mm -hmm. your daughter now? Twenty-two. Yeah, what's your no? You're nuts. biological daughter. Yeah, you've always so been nuts about. It. I remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah, she went through yeah. college. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so. so describe describe your love for your three new children. Um, same as your daughter. Well, same and different, um, because when you have a newborn baby, you don't know who they are, but there is this immediate desire to. Uh, to to protect because they're so vulnerable, yes. right? And so you swaddle them and you hold them close, and and there's um, this taking in of this child. When you meet an older child, it's like meeting um, almost like meeting an adult that you 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 have to get to know them, yes. right? Who are you? And yeah. there's and they're not 
in need of your protection the same way. They are uh, in need of love and protection, and they've missed out on so many of the milestones that my and the opportunities that my biological daughter had that they need, but they're not ready to let you give that to them just yet until you build up trust. Yeah. So, um, so there's a different beginning to that relationship, almost like falling in love with, um, with a partner. And, uh, but there's the love, the, the commitment, the sense of being their parent, the desire to see them succeed, the, uh, the joy in their successes, that's all there. Yeah. It's the start of it that is rather unique. And, and, um, and that's for the whole family, right? Because again, grandparents, aunts and uncles, it, a little tiny baby, you just pass that baby around, everybody yeah. gets a good snuggle, they feel good, their endorphins right. are going. You know, uh, uh, a four-year-old, uh, an eight-year-old, and a, an 11-year-old, when, which were the kids' ages when they arrived, um, they're not gonna let you just pass them around and snuggle into them, right? You gotta get to know them, you have to build up a relationship with them. So you fell in love with them? Yeah. You have fallen in oh love? Oh my gosh. And Adrian's fallen in love with them? Totally, totally. You know, um, same feeling of, uh, you know, I'm probably with your son, right? You watch them sleep and you just right. like, you're right. Just like, uh, that you wow. feel under their nose, make sure right? they're breathing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that too. Um, and with our, um, kids, I'm, I'm proud of all four of my kids. Um, and the three that have, um, the lives that they've lived already and the willingness that they have to trust and buy in, um, that astounds me. Their, yeah, their, yeah. their resilience, their courage um, is just something that, yeah, inspires. inspires. Are, you, are, you, are you good with that level of trust? Can you be trusted and feel that you can give trust as much as somebody will take from you? I'm asking that because yeah, I, I, I have trust issues. Right. Right. And, and I'm always curious about how people deal with intimacy on that level because I stop at a certain point mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. therefore I'm single. <laughs> 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 but, but, but really, like right. when these kids come yeah. to you and they nuzzle into your shoulder and they're yeah. crying and they're bawling and they're talking about stuff that went on that was pure shit in a child's life, mm-hmm. you're, you're completely there? You're present? Uh, absolutely. In fact, that's easier for me that when, than when they are... Um, they are acting out their pain in more aggressive ways, right? So when they are um, opened up, uh, I'm I'm just mom, right? I want to, you know. Yes. Um, so, uh, but kids who've been through trauma act out, uh, oh, you know, in very ambivalent okay. ways, and that's harder for me because um, I didn't experience that the push pull with, okay. with my eldest daughter, right? So, so we, I mean, we don't have to get into the details because, yeah. as you said before this uh, a broadcast, it's their lives, and we yeah. don't want to infringe upon that. But, but how nutty does it get? <laughs> oh, um, how nutty does it get? Uh, yeah, that's uh, it, it gets pretty nutty. Um, it gets pretty nutty. Like the uh, kids who've been through trauma have a hard time settling in and trusting, and they will push your buttons to to you know to get their pain over with now right they um and so they will find out what it is that you most you know can't cope with and they will give that a try so they figured you out oh for sure um and and the the question that they're asking is will you still love me if right is your love conditional because so far i have been you know dumped by um you know 
by multiple people. I've been through foster system, you know, multiple homes. My three-year-old had had five sets of parents by the time Whoa. he showed up in my house. Five sets of parents. How's he doing? He's doing great. Is he? Right? Yeah, he's doing great. He's, um, he's boisterous and um, brave and adventurous and loves to climb things and, and cuddles in and asks for hugs. And when I was on my way to see you today, he said, he said, bye, mommy, I will miss you. Right? And I love you. And I got a big hug. So he's, he is attaching and it's a beautiful, amazing gift. What have the three kids done for your marriage? I think they have strengthened it. Um, and I think we were fortunate going in, um, both being people who uh, have done a lot of therapy ourselves, so, so we, we really feel like we know who we are and what our needs are and how to talk to one another, um, that we had tools to cope with a lot of the challenges um, because adoption actually does um, lead to a lot of uh, relationship breakdowns in, in a lot of marriages. It, it's very hard. Uh, not adoption ne necessarily, but the traumas um, that, that are brought into the home. And uh, for us, it has made us more intentional about staying um, solidly a couple and n trusting that that is key to the health of the family. That if we can be healthy as a couple, then our family can thrive. And so we never put our needs um, to the side, you know, for the needs of the kids. We make sure that we meet our needs as we're meeting theirs, which is not always easy, right? And it's a, sometimes you find yourself lopsided one way or the other, right? How, how's, how are Adrian's parenting skills? He is phenomenal. Is he a parent. natural? Natural. He is so. Because um, is this his first time around? With kids? Yeah. So so he met Bailey, my eldest, at, at fourteen, and she was kind of mostly fully cooked, right? Like there wasn't <laughs> much that, um, and uh, and he has just stepped into this and leaned into this. And um, at one time, I I was feeling a little guilty because I work long hours and and I love my my job and my calling. And I'd been away, you know, for a long period in the day, and I was expressing some guilt about that. And he said, yeah, but when you do something you love and feel called to, you know, a 14-hour day doesn't feel long. Mm -hmm. And I went, oh, right. Because that's how I feel about my, my job, right. right? And that's how he feels about his stay-at-home parenting. Um, and, uh, yeah, I couldn't be prouder to be married to, to someone like him who, um, who loves so well and who uh, is growing with them right like he's he's not decided that that he's a fully grown human and his parenting is his parenting he is actively adapting to their needs and listening to them and doing this phenomenal dance where um he changes his parenting style because uh the style of parenting for uh for for our kids is is actually quite different than for my eldest one um and he has embraced it fully and does it better than i do how's bailey doing in all this she's so good how is she as a sister she's a great sister bailey's such an interesting case because um she was a single child uh for most of her life so the only child but then at uh, age 11 her dad got remarried and had two uh children one who has down syndrome so she became a half sister to you know two children one who has special needs and she embraced that fully and then you know in at about 20 she then became a sister to two to three adoptive children so she's now yeah. the eldest of six right <laughs> but, right but doesn't doesn't sort of, sort of has this 
strange identity as you know an only child in some sense and the eldest of six in another and um i think she misses the the quiet of coming home to our place and and <laughs> i um, imagine and she fully embraces uh the joy of the the three kids and the ways in which uh they look up to her and want her to be part of their life so it's interesting because it sounds like you're impressed with your entire village <laughs> I got a pretty good village. Um, how's, the chur- how's the church doing with the kids? Oh, Are they good? So good. When when we told them, because with adoption, you don't tell people until a match has been made. So we, you know, we gave them about a month's notice that we, I was going on parental leave. Now, I told my council that this was happening, but it's like trying. You don't tell people we're thinking of getting pregnant, you know, yes. but you have That's sort of this six months usually where when you start telling people to get people ready. And we didn't have that. And we had a few weeks and they took it upon themselves to create um, scrapbooks for each child, not just one, Did they? with a photo and a card from each congregant saying, you know, huh. Dear, like to each of the kids, and then and then saying, you know, this this is from. Some people call me Grandma Sue. You can call me whatever you'd like. I think you'll like it in Toronto because there's Sweet. this, that, and the other thing. And we got to deliver those before they came home on one of our visits. And they would like flip through them, and they still do. They're really? on their bookshelves in their rooms, and they'll still pull out the book that the congregation made for them. By the way, you yeah. know, at the top of this interview, mm-hmm. I was uh, critical of being a rabbinical son mm. and said that it came along with some baggage. But you know what it came along with as well? That community. Mm-hmm. Like all of a sudden you have all these people who are watching out for you, who care about you in different ways and who will give of themselves in the, in the way that you just stated. Mm -hmm. Imagine your three kids coming home to your family, to you and Adrian, who are beautiful, loving people. And then on top of that, they have this entire church who gives a damn about them as well. Yeah. yeah. The best case scenario, right? Yep. Yep. No, they are. They've been fully embraced. And I think that is the best of, see, I never understood um, church because I didn't grow up in a church. Now I do that. That's a place to practice being good humans, yeah, right. right? Like right. to you're, you're going to church with people who you normally would never sit down to dinner with or have a political discussion because you know, you'd start a fight or something. And, yes. and, and in this space you practice, being hospitable and welcoming and celebrating and caring. Um, and the amount of times when I just get so heartened because I hear that, you know, so-and-so noticed that, you know, this single mom who's having a rough time wasn't at church and so they called her and they took her out for lunch or they, you know, this, you know, couple is, is struggling with some health issues and so this other person called them and brought them some soup and I like, it just happens. Yes, it's nice. It's beautiful. I know, it's so nice. Right? It's beautiful. It would um, almost be great if we could just drop all the names, you mm-hmm. know, the Jewishness, the Christian. It would be great if, if just the world operated in that way. And, and mm-hmm. again, that goes back to the question I asked you at the top of this uh, mm-hmm. interview was, why isn't religion taking people to a righteous place? Uh, it would just, if, if, if everybody operated the way you do, I think the world would be a gorgeous place. I really do. Well, I think uh, the same of you, so thanks. Well, thank you for saying that. Yeah. Uh, so we're, yeah. we, we're each other's fans, that's yep. for sure. So a couple things before we wrap up. Sure. I love this interview. Love it. <laughs> thanks. What, uh, yeah, what's the thing that holds you back the most? Oh, my own fears about not being good enough. Right. Um, so I live with internalized sexism, yeah. for sure. Um, you know, that I have to fight against. And um, 
that's probably the and 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 as a child, I mean, it's another story. I was I was I was bullied for a long time, so there was a loss of self esteem way back when that I kind of had to regain. Um, so that's the stuff that holds me back: is who am I to right to do this or? Um, yeah, that's a tough you know? one. I used to get uh, mm-hmm. panic attacks. I'd be f- standing mm. in front of hundreds of people in a synagogue doing a service or a bar mitzvah and then wow. subconsciously feeling the same thing as who am I and if they really knew who I was mm-hmm. you know would they really want me to lead the service or come to the yeah. service right yeah. that's a real tough one. Oh, it's horrible I mean Adrian jokes uh, it's it's less severe now but there was Saturday Night Alexa and Sunday Night Alexa right, Saturday right. Night Alexa was the one who was convinced that this is the day that they're gonna find out I'm a fraud right, right. right I'm gonna go to church there's nothing in my sermon that's of value and they're gonna find out right and Sunday Night Alexa was like fooled them again yeah, <laughs> right? I know that's what that's lived, what happens lived another day that's what happens um, you know so, so if if you could throw out a message mm. uh, to our listeners to people just to people, what, what would be the most important thing that we should be practicing in life on a daily basis? I think it's opening our hearts um, to, to both the joy and the pain of living, um, to not be so afraid of that. Uh, I think that we can't do this alone. You know, we were made to be in community. And as much as I joke about the fact that, you know, I fear failure, the fact is I am going to fail. And part of uh, being human is needing someone else to succeed, right? The newborn baby needs the mom and the dad. Um, You and I need each other. And if we could just remember that that's actually not failure, that's success. Um, to open ourselves up to one another and to build this um, life together, right? Um, But that takes courage and that takes a willingness to feel another person's pain and to be moved by it um, and to let someone else feel your pain and to allow them to be moved by it and to support you. Uh, I couldn't raise my kids without a community around me. I couldn't um, have supported the Pasumas without the community around me. Um, We've got a myth that we have to bust, that we do it alone, um, or that we're supposed to be um, all things. And um, and the way to bust that is the vulnerability as strength as opposed to weakness. Mm. Uh, Did did you, uh, so do you think you're doing okay in life? I had a birthday last week, and um, how old are you? Forty-five. You're forty-five. Yeah. Congratulations. Thanks. And my mom said, uh, "It's a big birthday. You're like solidly middle age." <laughs> Thanks, mom. <laughs> Great. This is a supportive mom. Yeah. Well, you know, if I lived like your last um, guest, maybe I'm not even close to middle age yet. <laughs> no, not even. Yeah. Um, but I am happy. I wake up feeling like if I died today. I'd be sad, but it would be okay. Right. Right? And I want to keep doing that. I want to keep feeling like um, I'm making the choices that I want to make. And um, I don't want to feel like I've missed out on an opportunity to do something good in the world um, and to make my life count. So, yeah, so far, so good. Uh, if people want to be in touch with you at the church, how would they do that? Uh, well, windermerechurch.ca. 
minister at windermerechurch.ca. Um, Stonesoupnetwork.ca is a really cool charity that we've started at the church. Yeah, that I they read could about check that. Well, just in one line or less. It's basically the church uh, on online in some ways. It's we invite local businesses and individuals to give from their abundance to people in need. So uh, this came from the fact that it takes more than just food and uh, and housing to feed the soul. You need to be able to celebrate uh, a birthday, and when you live in the city of Toronto, and there's m- you know millionaires living next to you as they as they are in our neighborhood, mm-hmm. we have three community housing and then million dollar homes. Mm-hmm. It tears at the soul when your kids ask, why didn't I get what I asked for from, from Santa? And other kids are getting Disney trips. So we're leveling the playing field and we're building community um, by, uh, by uh, inviting people to share from their abundance. And it's the stone soup story that whenever we share what is uniquely ours to share, uh, the, there's more than enough to go around. And that's the secret to happiness, right? This village of people who had their windows and doors closed all put into this pot of soup. And by the end of the day, they're sharing breaking bread in yeah. the center of town together. Yeah. So that's the hope behind that little charity. It's, this stuff is all very possible. A lot of people would think that you and I are naive, but I don't think we're naive. No, you know, if we can be. do bad, we can do good. Absolutely. And we, we have can't. done incredible things in this world, the right? The world has already changed yes, so much, yes, right? I mean, Absolutely. you and I would not have been able to sit next together, Correct. you know, at a few hundred years ago. Like, this is, the world is changing, and it is towards the good. And I do believe, yeah. you know, Martin Luther King Jr., that, the, that you know, it bends towards justice. Um, it does. It takes, takes its time, but it also takes us participating. Yeah, and it takes a whole lot of creativity. Isn't it a Jewish um, proverb that, you know, you, your job, you, you don't have to do it yeah. all, but you neither can you desist from doing it, Yeah, that's it, exactly right? right, yes. And yes. that's sort of how I feel. And in, in the way another way I say it is, you know, my job's not to be successful, it's to be faithful. To be faithful. Okay, I have right? to think about that one. I don't have to succeed. I have to be faithful because I just have to add my part to it. Interesting. Right? Okay. I don't have to solve all the world's problems. Although you'd like to, wouldn't you? Wouldn't it be great? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I know you would. <laughs> I know you would. Alexa yeah. Gilmore, thank you so hey. much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's been an absolute yeah. pleasure. You've been listening to Hat Radio and our guest, Alexa Gilmore. Uh, please uh, feel free to email me with any questions that you might have about this episode or other ones that we've done. If you have any ideas for guests, that would be great as well. I'm avram.rosenswag at viahafta.org. And I look forward to hearing from you. Um, And I thank you so much for listening. God bless. Hey, a big shout out to Stone City Edibles. And let's dedicate this episode to them. Did you know that they sell almost all gluten-free cannabis infused medicinal and recreational products, including chocolate chip cookies, double chocolate chip cookies, oatmeal raisin. I've had them all. They're unbelievable. $50 $50 will get you six and a hundred bucks will get you a dozen. If you would like to order probably the best tasting and the most powerful edible in the land, be in touch with Stone City Edibles at Stone City Edibles 2016 at gmail.com or go to their website, stonecityedibles.com.